Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Don Mazzella, and the program is Small Business Digest. Uh, we have an exciting program today. Uh, our our fir- uh, first guest is, is very unusual. She's going to talk about uh, branding. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine. First, introduce yourself and, and the name of your company and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. Well, my name is Natasha Davis, and they call me the Chief Visionary. I am a branding strategist, and I've been doing that for just over 10 years. Uh, My niche market is in healthcare. However, over the past 10 years, I have been able to help and serve several different industries, including the real estate industry, service professionals, health and beauty industry, as well as the restaurant industry as well. Wow, you cover a lot of areas. Um, I invited you onto this program because um, some, a you have a new book, but more importantly, someone uh, gave you a very strong recommendation. My first question to you is: In your mind, what is branding? You know, branding gets misinterpreted or misused and underused by a lot of companies. Why? Because they don't know it. And branding overall, sometimes the first thing to do is talk about why is branding underutilized. Branding sometimes is believed to stop at websites and logos, and that's not where branding stops, nor does that where branding starts. Branding is focused on making sure that the company continues to be top of mind in the minds of the marketplace. So branding is the strategy. Branding is pricing. Branding is customer relationship. Branding is also, of course, how do you look uh, outside to the marketplace and to the consumers. You know, branding is everything that the company stands for. It's, It's the company's identity and what the company looks like to the marketplace. So it doesn't stop only at websites and logos, but it even goes on many other layers, even down to the the team members. Branding are the team members and the staff as well. It's the way the office looks. It's the way the customer feels when they are, you know, greeted or the team answers the phone and how they see to. So branding has to do with the entire spectrum of what does the company look like, feel like, and sound like out in the marketplace. That is an absolutely great uh, introduction. Now, uh, 59% of our audience are presidents and or owners. What are some, uh, and they're mostly in the small business space. So um, with that in mind, uh, tell us some of the things people should be doing to, to be good brand people. You know, some of the things um, that I tell uh, when I work with clients and so forth and that I even talk about in my new book, Unleash Your Millionaire Mindset and Build Your Brand, some of the things I talk about is when you're looking about doing branding, the first stop you want to take a look at is what is the overall position of the company in the marketplace? So remember I said, you know, what the company feels like and, and, and looks like in the marketplace, the first place to stop is say, okay, what does our company look like in terms of visually? 
how does the marketplace feel when they are interacting with our company? So that's the emotional branding. And then auditory branding, when someone hears the name of your company, what is the response that they have? Is it one of those exciting responses like, oh, yeah, that's a great company, or they have no effect at all, or they have a bad response like, oh, man, that company's terrible, like don't ever do that. So the first thing to do is to take a little inventory and assess what are the three brand positions of the company? How do they look and feel visually, emotionally, and auditorily in the marketplace? And that's the key place that to stop is look at those three branding positions of any company, regardless of the size or the industry. Wow. You really have this down. It's so concise. You're taking my breath away. But, um, Okay. Now, now, can we talk about so you, you? I understand run a boot camp as well on the subject. Uh, can you tell yes. us some of the uh, some of the things that you talk about about branding? Some of the practical things people can do. Absolutely. So um, we do what's called a two-day intensive branding boot camp, and it's focused on working with organization leaders and helping them to understand how to advance their or their company, whether it's small, medium, or large. And usually the, the people that come to our boot camp, it's a diverse group of individuals, but however, they're all the decision makers or they're the chief marketing officers or the strategic planners or the HR directors. So when it comes to the branding boot camp, and you get two days of an intensive learning, we are heavily focused on how to brand, how to grow, and how to sustain a company. So we talk about things, and we, we talk about things such as team building, supplying the demand, because you know that business and in the marketplace is all about supply and demand. Uh, we talk about the technology must-have for any company. We also dive into different marketing strategies, uh, contemporary as well as traditional marketing strategies to work within the company. We focus on the pitch. You know, what's the pitch? What's the position uh, for the company? And then we drive it home to how to create a profitable, advancing company. And so over the two days, it's a very hands-on, interactive uh, boot camp where things are being taught, and in the purpose of teaching them, they're also being learned and they're being duplicated. So people are creating new marketing campaigns right there at the boot camp. Uh, we have um, people are creating new press releases and press kits at the boot camp. People are revamping their pricing strategy because they're realizing that it's not matching with their brand, um, redefining their mission um, and their vision and their purpose. They're, they're developing new tools new programs, new services and products all through the branding boot camp. And when they're done, at the end of the two-day boot camp, they have executable uh, projects in their hand that they have started implementing in the two-day boot camp, and they're going to be able to carry it through. Uh, so they're not walking away with a, a book full of information, and then they get back to the office and they say, well, what do we do with all this information now? No, they've already begun executing and putting things in place during the two-day boot camp, so when they get back to the office, all they're doing is keeping it going and delivering. Our boot camp is designed to enhance the competitive edge of companies and to get companies unstuck and out of the robotic uh, uh, rut of doing things. It's really to exhilarate and to um, really advance organizations. Wow. Well, okay, saying that, um uh, again, I'd like to get to, uh, in this program, we, we like to get to um, 
spe- some specifics. What what things do you tell people? Um, can you give us an example of how uh, someone can can achieve these goals? Oh yeah, absolutely. So let's take for example. Uh, let's just get very specific, and let's take, for example, a company that has a new product uh, that they're, they're going to advance. Our, our specialty is in services, uh, service professionals, because a lot of times it's easy to move a product, but it's not as easy to move a service. And so, therefore, mm, but, let's, let's kind of say it again. No, I, I'm saying you're very right. Go, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, so definitely. So it, we, we actually specialize in services, how to position a service as a product. Um, sometimes people can't relate, so I like to talk about the product and we tie it back into a service. So let's take, for example, there's a company that has a new, um, about four products, and the four products are doing pretty well, and they decide they want to add a fifth product. However, that fifth product seems to be lagging a little bit. The first thing that we would do is say, let's take a let's let's pull back now because when you're branding, you're branding not only the company, you're branding yourself, you're branding a product. Each product has its brand, and so you look at it like that. So let's pull back and say, okay, let's look at the product for itself because that's a stand on its own legs, and we'll look and say, does this product have positioning visually? What do people feel when they see this product? And does this product have an emotional position in the marketplace? When people touch the product, when people experience the product, what's the response that they have? And when people hear about the product, what's the response they have? So we we break it down to a very granular level, and we say, let's look at the product on itself. There's a reason why a product does not do well. And so we stop and we say, let's look at the branding position of this particular product. And once we do that, then we advance and we say, okay, what's the marketing message that this particular product has? Now, sometimes what will happen is in companies will, you know, they get real excited because the four products were doing so well. They just rolled out a fifth product and they didn't put any research behind it and they didn't put any energy behind it. They figured they can use the same verbiage from product one to four which that's not true. So we'll come back to the board and we'll say, okay, let's look at what we call ADA, A-I-D-A, A-I-D-A, ADA. So does the product or the marketing message have an attraction message? Does the message about this product attract the attention and stimulate the marketplace to even look at what you're offering? Because there's so much noise in the, in the marketplace now, you have to find your way. You know, a few years ago, we were exposed to maybe about 150 to 200 marketing messages and advertisements a day. Now, we're exposed to over 3,000 marketing messages every single day. And, you know, every day we're being stimulated by someone else trying to grab our attention. So let's pull back and look at it. Does it attract attention? And what kind of attention is it attracting? The next thing we look at is, does the message and the brand of this product spark the right interest so that the audience can say, you know what, I think I want what you're offering. And so we have to see, does it spark some kind of an interest? When we then go back, we go to D, which is desire. Does the marketing message and the brand of this particular product create a desire for whatever it is that the consumer wants? Is there a desire? Does the product connect to the problem that they have? Is it positioned as a solution? 
And then we say, okay, let's look at what kind of call to action has been placed on the product. Has the brand of this product created and, and sent out a call to action? I'll tell you the truth, right, Don? A lot of times what happens is there was no call to action. Whenever a product or a service does not move like it should, oftentimes what I've found is that there was no call to action. And when I say a call to action is if you don't tell the marketplace what you want them to do, they are not going to do it. If you don't say, I want you to purchase this and however way you want to put the verbiage, if you don't tell them to make the purchase, if you don't tell the marketplace to go online, if you don't tell the marketplace that this is a great product, they won't know, they won't do why? Because nowadays we are being exposed to over 3,000-plus marketing messages and branding messages that we can't decipher sometimes. We just it, we become numb to it. We become very numb to it. And so that's one of the things we stop and look at. So anyone that's having any kind of concerns with a product or a service that's not moving like it should, look at its brand positioning visually, emotionally, and auditorily. How is it looking? And then take a look at ADA. Does it attract? Does it have um, spark interest? Does it create desire? And does it have a clear call to action? Hmm. The, uh, your name again and the name of your book and how people can uh, reach you? Absolutely. It's Chief Visionary Natasha Davis with Impact Branding. And the name of my company is Impact Branding. And I've recently released my second book called Be Unleashed, Unleash Your Millionaire Mindset and Build Your Brand. What's your website? Website is www.impactbrandingconsulting.org, impactbrandingconsulting.org. Well, um, I just had an email come across uh, my desk. and um, uh, What do you say about logos? Wow. You know, <laughs> that's such a that's such a very broad uh kind of just broad question, but one thing I can say about logos is uh the first thing I like to say is don't clip art a logo. Some some people just like to clip art something or they try to duplicate something. Your logo is a very transparent window into your company. Your logo has to be unique, it has to be clean, and it has to be able to communicate what you needed to communicate. You want to look at your logo and say what type of colors are you um do you have in your logo? And when it comes to branding, we have to look at the impact of the colors and what the colors do and stimulate. For example, people like to, sometimes people will use like a black and white logo because either they're afraid of color or they, they don't know what color to use, but you got to bring energy to your logo, right? So when you think about coloring, you want to say, okay, what is the dynamics or the environment of our company? Are we an energetic company? Are we very stoic? Are we professional? Are we fun? Um, are we cutting edge? And bring some, look at it there. You kind of look at it and say like green. If you're going to throw green into your logo, it's going to emit things that, that stimulate peace and growth and health. And that's what people feel when they see green. Um, if you think about blue, like a royal blue, royal blue tends, tends to emit a level of trust. People find trust in blue. Red, that red family brings excitement and youthfulness. Purple is about royalty and creativity. Um, yellow is about optimism. Um, if you think about things like orange, orange is like cheerful and bubbly. Gray gives balance. 
So when you think about a logo, the logo is going to be your visual representation and branding of your company, and you don't want your logo to be dry and blocked, right? You don't want this thing to be like this regular thing because you give a, a real sloppy or, um, you know, uh, a boring, so to speak, logo that doesn't communicate who your organization is. You know, people will see that and like, ah, oh, maybe, you know, uh, they're not probably very good. And, and it's funny because I've had people, we did a focus group a couple of years ago, and we just put, put out different logos. And um, people, the way that people interpreted what this company does and who this company is and the integrity of the company and the position of the company, that they, they did that all by logos. And I remember there was a, a black and white logo, and I, I still remember today, the group said that's probably such a boring company because they, they, don't, they don't take risks, they're not cutting edge, and it's probably like some kind of catering or restaurant business. And funny enough, it was a dentist. It was a dentistry organization. Well, um, uh, let me uh, ask you uh, again another question, uh, and it, it's uh, interesting enough. Um, it's something I've always say. I've seen so many companies, uh, John Jones, uh, comma Inc. Consultants. What do you think about that? You know, whenever you're going to use your name in a company, so like you said, John Jones Consulting Inc. Right. The the interpretation of that is the John Jones company, it has a person who is the beginning and the end to that company. And the name of the company, which is the name of the person, the person will now need to brand themselves. The person needs to brand themselves so their name becomes their brand. And everything that goes out would have to be under their name. So they would have to be so careful, everything they say, everything they do, how they appear, where they go, how they get there has to be so specific. From a business strategy side, when you brand a company with your name, the the risk that you then take is if someone is not happy with you or your service, your, your name is on the line across the board. People can, um, you know, legal actions can be taken against you, your name. You, you will have a hard time to separate you, the person, from you, the company. And that is a very, very, um, very tricky place to be in. When you have a company, you have to be in a place where you separate you, the person, from you, the company. Because we're in such a litigious uh, community and, and, and world, you got to be careful that you separate you from the company. Now, as people are releasing books and they're maybe doing programs and they want to brand things and trademark things, those things will become a bit of an issue. Most people think it's a great idea um, because they think, well, it's my company, my name. But then people sometimes will think, well, you're the beginning and the end. So say, for instance, if I, most law legal companies have their name, so the, the, the head esquire, the attorney, it usually becomes the name of the company. So like, you know, like say John Jones Law Group or whatever, if John Jones decided he wanted to step down and not be a part of it as much, it, it would take a lot for him to step down, if that makes sense, because everybody's expecting that person to be there. Again, I have another question coming across. Um, 
how how does one um there's there's a lot of talk in fact our next guest is talking about the inequality in terms of raising capital et cetera between women and ah. men yes. how, uh, how, <laughs> <laughs> the question was how do you convince uh, is it better to say you're a women owned company how do women how, what are the best ways for women to brand their company so that it's more than just a woman's company. Wow. You know, I got to tell you, that is a uh, a sweet spot for me, Um, raising capital and women businesses and so forth. Here's what I'll tell you. Um, For women, let's talk about women here. When a woman is um, branding her company, she has, if, if she positions herself right, it will be extremely advantageous. And how so? Women-owned businesses have advantages. And if an organization like my company has about six certifications to do business with the government, and two of those certifications are specifically driven to the fact that I am a woman-owned business, you can really um, capitalize on the fact that you are a woman-owned business. However, if you don't position yourself correctly, it can hurt you in the long run. Now, so you wouldn't want to, you would only use I am a woman-owned business, I am woman, hear me roar, if it's a matter that I am capturing a percentage in the marketplace because this this person needs to do business with women-owned companies. When you're entering into the world, like my company, what I do as a branding strategist and um, a marketing person, my industry is dominated by men. I am in a very male-dominant industry. When you look into large companies and things like that, you don't find a lot of female chief marketing officers. You don't. There's a, it's very male-dominant. And so when you present yourself as a woman, unless you are bidding on a particular contract that says uh, this contract has to carry 5% or 10% of women-owned business, there's no need to be so so to exhilarate. I am a woman-owned company. It doesn't matter unless you're bidding on a contract that requires the organization to say you need to do business uh, with at least 5 or 10% of a woman-owned business or company. Mm-hmm. You, As a woman, you want to stand on the ability to get results. I own the company. I run it with, with uh, efficiency, I'm effective, and we are focused on getting results. And that's how you position it because, unfortunately, there's still inequality and women are still viewed as emotional beings that if they don't get a contract, they go crying or they get emotional in the boardroom and all this other craziness. When, in fact, women are some of the most savvy business people um, and they know how to get results because we just, we're used to, you know, multitasking and strategically thinking. And, and critically thinking, that's just how we are. But if a woman wants to use her gender to get a contract, um, make sure it's for the purposes of getting a contract because the contract stipulates they must do business with 2%, 5%, or 10% of a woman-owned business. Other than that, it's not relevant. That's my well, opinion. That, that's great. Um, uh, you certainly um, – uh, uh, getting responses from our audience. Uh, another one uh, came across, um, across our desk. Um, 
how, how does a company um, use its clients, uh, you know, big uh, major clients, good housekeeping, seal of approval clients like um, uh, HP, et cetera, to help them brand them, their own companies? All right. Can you give me the question one more time? Sure. Probably made it. Uh, basically, uh, how can you use your client list to indicate that you're much better uh, uh, to get new business? Ah, okay. How do you use your client base to get more business? Okay. In, in terms you know, of branding. That, in terms of branding. Okay. So, un, un, unless you are a niche market, unless you specifically, like we we now niche into healthcare. So, therefore, if I say I want more healthcare clients, then, of course, I have to make sure they know I work with different healthcare um, organizations on different levels. You use your client list uh, for branding in the sense, it's twofold, in the sense of I am trying to niche market here in this industry. So, therefore, I will make sure I outline all of the clients that have been in this industry so that other clients, other potential clients in the same industry will see me as an industry expert. If you have a very broad prior, you know, before we used to work with several different um, industries, and that was okay until we decided to niche into healthcare. So you can, you can outline your client list as much as you need to, but you only use it if you're trying to capture niche market because if you work in five different, if you work in a broad data um, industry, all of the different clients you have listed, it doesn't support that you are an industry expert. It just says that you, you know how to work with clients, but at the same time, it doesn't, all, it doesn't say that you can get results either. You can work with them. You can list 600 clients, but if your goal is to go back to the point and say, hey, listen, I need people that's going to talk about the results that we got. So use your client list in that sense. I'm going to reach out to that client. Hey, listen, can you send me um, an endorsement letter that says the results that you've gotten out of the business that we provided? That's what's going to hold more weight because what has, what the, has shifted in, in, the, in the marketplace and in the business marketplace now is companies – are not overly impressed anymore. The decision makers are not overly impressed with a very massive client list. They're more focused on what results can you get and what problems can you solve for me because I'm going to pay you this money and I want my results and I want solutions. And having a large client list does not really say that. It just says that you was able to float through um, this client list. And, and really and truly some people, they, they don't really tell the truth about their client list anyway. So the, the industry has shifted. No one's overly focused on the client list anymore. It's nice to have, but what they're more clear on is, can you get, can you get results, and what pro, what, which of my problems can you solve, and how are you going to solve it? So that's what you want to focus on. Hmm. Natasha, um, name of your company again and, and your uh, book and your website. Absolutely. Natasha Davis, Chief Visionary with Impact Branding. Name of my book, Unleash Your Millionaire Mindset and Build Your Brand. You can go to www.impactbrandingconsulting.org, and you can take a look and see, you know, what we do and what we're about. Well, how did you come – why do you use um, that uh, nickname, Chief Visionary, and, and what do you mean by it? 
You know, here's what I'll tell you behind that. Ten years ago when I got into business, um, the, the marketplace gave me the name. I did not give myself the name. The marketplace gave me the name. I was uh, about two years in. Um, I, I did a lot of radio. Um, I hosted a TV show for five years called, um, you know, uh, A Day in the Life of Business. Uh, we did a radio show, Coaching for Success, different clients I was helping. And I remember that we were on air on the radio, um, and we were also, we did a TV show, and somebody may have heard it on the radio first, and they said, you know what? This woman is like the chief visionary. Like she can envision what we want and she can help us get there. So she is the chief visionary. And this was about um, eight or nine years ago. The marketplace gave me the name and it's stuck ever since. Um, the, that's what they call me. And so therefore I humbly, you know, carry that name. And um, that's what it's been for the past 10 years. I never called myself that. The marketplace called me that. Well, that's interesting. Well, how does one... <laughs> In their own company, come up. Um, well, obviously, somebody told you. So, how do you elicit um, comments like that so that, so that it helps you market your brand? You know, so um, if, if someone's saying, you know, I want, I need a tag, you know, like I, I need a tag name. If you, and it's not really that you need one; it's if you want one. If you want a tag name, um, I, I truly believe that it's again, it's supply and demand, right? Let the marketplace tell you who you are and what they find you to be. They will tell you if you give them the opportunity to. If you allow people to, to, to come into you, they will tell you. That, honestly, is the best way to give yourself that name. However, if you want to give yourself your own tag and your own brand uh, tag to follow, here's what I would say. Go back to the drawing board. What results do you get? What do you hone in on? What do you create? That's how you will give yourself that name. So, you know, if, you're, if you are real passionate or very efficient about empowerment, then you can say that you can use that term. If you are very uh, efficient in financing, you can call yourself the finance guru. If you are, um, you know, it's about what you do. Like I am not – I may be the CEO of my company and I'm the founder and so forth, but that's irrelevant because being the CEO doesn't catalog what results I get and what I do. So therefore, um, even on my business card, it says I'm the brand, I'm a chief branding strategist because that's what I am because that's what I do. So if you want to give yourself a branding tag, focus on the results you get and what you do, kind of list it out, and then you'll come up with a tag that's going to speak to who you are and what you do. That's what we have to always go back to, who you are and what results do you get. What do you do? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep you on because you're so good. Uh, <laughs> um. Well, I guess the, the, the next question I, I would ask is, um, what are some of the obstacles you've run into uh, in, oh, wow. <laughs> that you've overcome? And that you, well, let's put, what are the two greatest obstacles you, you've managed to overcome? Oh, my gosh, Don. You know, being in business like 10 years, there's so many to think about. Um, one obstacle as – all right, I'll talk about one from a um, – 
small business perspective, one that's starting up um, and, and, and to that, I'll speak to it one from that way and I'll speak to it from through the growth stage, okay? Um, when you're starting or you're, you're a small business in that, in that place, one obstacle was getting recognized and acknowledged as a capable company because people feel comfortable with, you know, who they know. And so 10 years ago when I first started in business, I was unknown because, again, my first profession, which is why I'm, I'm an expert in healthcare, is um, nursing. I'm a registered nurse and did a nursing for 15 years, worked in trauma and emergency room, focused on process improvement, performance improvement, did a lot of strategic planning and training. And so when I ventured into business to run the company and when I would approach other companies now, the, my obstacle was making the transition from being an employee to being an entrepreneur. And some people will say from employee to employer, but you're not an employee because you can't hire anybody when you first get started, let's be, let's be honest. So shifting from the mindset of being an employee, being told what to do, being given the policies, being given the tasks, to being an entrepreneur, having to figure out the policy, the tasks, and the procedures. Okay, that was one of my big challenges. And the way that I overcame that was I educated myself, you know, knowledge is power, you know, earning is learning. Okay, so I educated myself on the specifics of being an entrepreneur and what it took to be an entrepreneur, how to make decisions as an entrepreneur, and things of that nature. I got a lot of books, I did a lot of seminars, webinars, conferences, and so that I can, um, indoctrinate myself into that new principle because when you make that shift, it's very hard because as an employee, you're constantly being told what to do and how to get there. They're giving you the deadlines. They're giving you the parameters um, and, and, and all those things, right? And all you have to do is show up for work and you get a check. When you're an entrepreneur, you have to go make it happen so that you can get a check, okay? So that was challenge mm -hmm. number one in the beginning. Um, the, the next uh, Natasha, was, I'm going to have to sure. interrupt you right now because um, I, I have to um, my next guest on the, on the board. So um, I, I, I'm going to invite you back because you have so much to say. But I have to move on to our next guest. Uh, so sounds um, good. Well, it's been great. No, no, it has. You've given us so much information. Um, uh, please, uh, I'll talk with your people and get you back on the program sometime soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you so much, Don. No, thank you. Our next. All righty. Bye bye. Bye bye. Our next guest is, is, is Dave Wiesbeck. He's Chief Strategy Officer with, with uh, uh, Vizier. He talks about a new study they've done, which I find fascinating. We also have, oh, standing by, uh, two brothers who run a very, very interesting company, and I'm going to ask them to be patient a little bit while we hear from Dave. So, uh, Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No, uh, <clears throat> Dave, we're running a little uh, long today. So, uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself personally, and then about the study. You're the Chief uh, Strategy Officer for Vizier. And uh, we're going to give you time to talk about what I found to be a fascinating study. So please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the study. Yeah, happy to. So I'll, I'll be brief. Um, as uh, 
I'll definitely get the hint. You're a little, you know, things are running a little long today. The um, so back up for myself personally. Uh, I'm a technologist, been in the technology, particularly software industry, for uh, quite some time, so almost 20 years, uh, or more than 20 years now. Time flies. Uh, and uh, big companies, small companies, uh, always had a passion for the smaller companies. And so uh, about five or six years ago, we founded a new organization called Vizier. So we say that Vizier like Vizier with a V, um, although it's spelled with an I, for those who want to go look at our website. Uh, and uh, our, what we're trying to do is help organizations to get better answers, deeper answers around their people that we collect a tremendous amount of information and there's a, a tremendous amount of information available today about the workforce and the labor markets and how can we give you access to that information to allow you to make better decisions. That's what we're really trying to help organizations do uh, and what I'm personally passionate about. And our study that you're, you referenced is we looked across all of our customer base recently trying to really unlock what what is the reasons behind the disparity that we see in real earnings when it comes to men versus women. So the, the gender gap when it comes to uh, pay equity, trying to go deeper than the simple, it's not right, it's not fair, there's bias, and try to understand the, the real reasons behind it. And we think we've got something interesting to share on that front. Okay. So, and what, what, what did you find? Yeah, what we found is there's something that we're calling the manager divide. And the notion of this is relatively simple. Um, when you look at the data, what you find is that the participation of women in the workforce, so how much they relatively make up of the workforce, declines somewhere around the late 20s and is a, a very clear drop-off somewhere in the, the mid to late 20s and picks back up and women actually become a much larger part of, part of the relative workforce uh, sometime in their early to mid-40s. We thought that time frame was really interesting. So what we did is we looked at that time frame and said, what's happening to salaries during that time frame? And we realized that the gap between what men and women earn widens right around the age of 32, which is the heart of that dip where women are leaving the workforce. Um, then we confirmed, are women actually leaving the workforce? Is there something else? And so you look at a measure called voluntary turnover. It's you know, people deciding to leave their employer. And we see that, yes, it is an, a voluntary action. Then we looked at one other little piece of data that kind of connected all the dots for us. And that is the how many men versus how many women, relatively speaking, are, are becoming managers. And we put that also against that same time frame, and we saw the same number come back. At around age 32, there's a inflection point. The, number, the relative number of men versus women who are being managers starts to get wider right around age 32. And so we put those three data points together, and the story becomes fairly clear. Um, right around the time that the family burdens, if you will, burden seems a bad way to talk about the family, but the, the responsibilities and the amount of work that's needed to support a family increases uh, as people are having children and children are young. The gap in salaries widens. Relative mix of, of managers starts to go much heavily towards men. And 
uh, all of that comes together then to tell us that this is really an issue that we're calling, as I say, the manager divide. And the last piece is that managers, what we found looking across over 160,000 employees, uh, so quite a broad view looking at employees, is that managers earn about twice as much as, uh, as non-manager employees. And so it's really very much driving this divide in terms of um, any sort of pay equity. Wow. So, so do you think the fact that women leave to, to take care of their children uh, is, is a driving factor? Yeah, what we're trying to, to, as I said at the beginning, we're, what we're trying to do is go deeper than just say, here, here, give some details to the magnitude of the problem or how big or how small it is or where it may be centered and trying to have a deeper conversation. We're trying to help with a deeper conversation to figure out why it is what it is. And, and in that regard, um, the conversation that we're hoping we can help people to have is, why is this happening? Is there a undue burden being placed uh, in terms of the, the family responsibilities that women are shouldering? Is that a societal problem that we want to address? Is that a, you know, should, should you know, governments and legislators get involved in trying to say, and policymakers, should they get involved and say, look, there's, there's, there's something that we should do different? Should businesses get uh, involved in their own policies and say, look, you know, we, we should probably do something different here because we're not going to be able to get access to this great talent. Their career may get stalled out. Um, they may want to get involved and say, look, you know, when it relates to the, to the responsibilities around family, whether it's raising children or taking care of aging uh, parents, whatever that case may be, um, should men be playing a stronger role in that? Is, is that good for us as a business? Is that good for us as a society? And, and so we're trying to say, let's have those deeper conversations because what we know is this gap that exists between the relative pay has existed for some time. It is the rate at which it is closing and getting closer together, the rate at which we've been able to do that, it's slowing down. It's getting harder to close that gap than it has been historically where we've made some big strides in terms of closing that gap. Um, it's ironic, Dave, because a study came across my desk on Monday involving uh, academic uh, tenure. And about 20 years ago, the, uh, the colleges decided, universities, that they would add a year uh, to the tenure track from six to seven because it, it, to help women who drop out or are slowed by family uh, uh, better compete on the tenure track. And what they found was that it actually helped the men more, that it actually widened the gap by by almost a quarter, by over a quarter uh, uh, that men use that extra year to, in effect, get um, uh, better results and uh, reach tenure even faster, um, not faster, but even at a higher rate than uh, than before. It's very funny that your study com comes out at the same time uh, indicating that. But I'd like, Dave, I'd like you to stay on because we have uh, our next guest. We have two brothers who run a business together and their topic is how you do it but I'd like you to stay on because uh, it, 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 this is all in, kind of roll into together do you have time to stay on I can do that yep happy to okay now uh, hold on a second and I'll just clue them in Rick are you there 
Are you there? Uh, Hello? Yes, yes. Yes, this is Nick. Okay. Please introduce yourself and your company. Uh, I know you've been listening in on this, but we want to talk uh, uh, to you about two things, how two brothers run a company and, and some of the other things. But I'd like Dave to stay on to make this to uh, contribute at some point. Uh, okay. Introduce yourself and your company and tell us a little bit about what's going on. Okay. My name is Nick Cardello. Uh, the company is Castle Windows. Uh, we do replacement windows. Um, we've been here in New Jersey. Uh, me and my brother have been owners uh, since 2005. Um, previous to that, you know, Castle Windows has been around since the 70s. Um, started uh, down in Florida by a gentleman named Elliot Cohen, who had uh, several franchises. He had one in uh, North Carolina, one in Pittsburgh. Um, and my father had worked out in Pittsburgh. Um, an opportunity came up to open a franchise in New Jersey. So he came out here in uh, 1991 and started a company f from a hotel room, Red Roof Inn. Um, did pretty much everything himself. Um, and, and through all that time, you know, me and my brother had uh, had worked uh, at the company from high school on and learned the trade. And eventually we uh, bought the company from him in, in 2005. Um, now, these other franchises that had existed, um, you know, some of the owners were you know, a little bit older. Some of them were just looking to get out. Some of them were you know, worried about the economy. So what we did was we kind of reverse franchise. We, we bought each a territory. We bought the Pittsburgh territory. We bought the Connecticut, um, the North Carolina, the Virginia territory. And uh, we uh, basically absorbed all the castles in that area. We eventually bought the rights to the name Castle Windows, and, uh, and now we're in, in 15 states um, operating as Castle. Um, so that's just a little bit about the company. I'm not sure how far you want me to go into um, you know, well, into that. Uh, are you into replacement windows? Yes, yes. So, so in other words, if you want to do it. Well, um, uh, I don't know if, how much you heard of Dave. Um, uh, Dave's comments. Uh, I'd like uh, uh, into into, uh, into this a little bit deeper. And here you have two brothers running a company. Um, uh, now it's a bigger company. You picked up um, how, uh, in, in your own business, uh, which is uh, almost a craft business. Um, uh, what they said about um, the the uh, inflection point of HR2, do you see that within your own business? Well, you know, typically we we you know we well we um, we don't have uh, like for example my my office door it doesn't have you know vice president CFO we don't have titles written on our doors um, we run things um, you know a little differently where you know everybody is is very much hands on. And that's one of the things that, you know, my father did. He ran everything himself. He did everything himself. Um, he didn't necessarily go out and look for um, somebody with a BFA or, or, or um, you know, I'm sorry, not BFA. That's what I have, <laughs> an MBA to, to, you know, come in and manage. You know, it's it's more about the person. Um, can this person be trusted? Uh you know, is this person loyal? Um, the, the characteristics aren't weren't necessarily what is their business skill. The characteristics were, um, you know, 
how, how would this person react in, in, in a situation where, you know, we had to rely on them, you know. So um, I think we're coming at it from a different angle where, um, you know, we don't necessarily look for um, people coming out of college to fill the managerial positions. Um, typically, um, we'll, you know, find people from within or people who had been in the industry before, um, you know, we do have we do have several female managers. Um, you know, I, I I heard you know the, the study and and I and I find it you know to be pretty interesting. I'd like to you know look into it more. Um, so I mean, I well, definitely want to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, you, you know that's the interesting thing, um, and, and Dave, I'd like you to comment. In this, we're, we're, our show is essentially for small business. And uh, small businesses are less concerned with gender than with um, uh, abilities and mm-hmm. to fit in. Um, did, did you, uh, when you, you did your study, uh, do, you, do you look at any of these factors? Yeah, I, um, I have a favorite little expression, which I admittedly stole from Yoko Ono of all people to steal an expression from, but it's the idea of you got to think globally, but you got to act locally. And what it really means in, in this context is, you know, at, at the big picture, um, there's some issues that we should be having discussions about. When it comes down to the day-to-day of running your business, though, you've got to make that right call around what's going to make you successful. And particularly in a small business, you, you, there's nobody, there's no safety net. There's nobody to bail you out. There's no big corporation that'll keep going because it's got thousands of customers already. So you're going to have to make that tough call day to day. So I think, but if you step back from that and say, okay, um, wouldn't it be great if we had access to 50% of the population as a potential great resource to be able to make us more successful? Uh, I think that would make us uh, make us all better. It would allow us to compete internationally better and you know be more successful even in our in our business that you know might be just in in one county or in one state. Well, um, and Nick, how do two brothers uh, build, uh, build and run a business together? Do you separate your your duties? Do you uh, how do you decide how to manage? Well, I think you know there's 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 a level of trust obviously and I, I think that trust is is more than just one type of trust you know it's there's there's the um the trust that i've known him for you know my entire life and i know that you know he's not going to you know do anything to to harm the business i i know that but there's also trust on the level of i have to trust uh his decisions and i have to trust that he makes the right decisions and it you know he has to reciprocate with that um so yeah there that we basically have uh two separate functions um you know he he focuses more on uh getting business the advertising the marketing um uh sales the, the front end um and i deal with um the compliance or if we're going into a new territory what do we need to do legally to 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 go into that area you know do we need do we need to be licensed um do the sales reps have to be licensed do we have to have a physical location um are there any local uh local city taxes or ordinances that we have to follow so you know it's 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 my my job is to kind of uh take care of, of all the back end stuff that comes with 
going into a new territory or making uh, marketing decisions. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm on the compliance end. I have to make sure that everything that we do is 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 on the up and up. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's definitely a separation um, of what we do, um, but you know, it's also a a, a big level of, of, of trust. Uh, the name of your company and how people can um, uh, reach you. Uh, so the company is Castle Windows. Our website is is castlewindows dot com. Uh, we have a one eight hundred number. It's one eight hundred three six zero four four zero zero. Uh, uh, Dave, the name of your company and how people could reach you. Yep, uh, name of the company is Vizier. Uh, we would say it Vizier, like Vizier with a V, but it would be spelled V-I-S-I-E-R. Our website, of course, Vizier.com, um, and that's the best way and easiest way to reach us. Well, um, we're getting close to the hour. hour. I was, tr- um, uh, I, I sometimes put together guests. Uh, sometimes it will, um, it leads to some other discussions, but I'm going to. Uh, um, uh, start start with you, Nick, and ask, what are the two things you've learned that you'd pass on to uh, our, our our audience? Um, you know, I think one of the most important things that I've learned is, as I learned from from my father, is you know how how to, how to treat people. Um, you know, how, how like I said earlier, you know, we don't have signs on our doors. We just we don't walk around and say, you know. I'm the vice president, I'm the president, I'm, you know, I'm the CEO, you, you do the, no, we don't do that. If if the phone rings and I'm the closest, that's what I'm going to pick up. And I, I, I think, you know, employees see that and I, I think they, they can appreciate that. And I think it's also about, you know, treating people with respect when they come to see you, your door's open. And we've had, uh, sometimes in the past, you know, someone, uh, a new manager might come on and, they might try to, you know, they think that we want to be shielded from, you know, uh, an employee's concerns. But that's not the case. You know, we want to have an open-door policy where anybody can come in here at any time of day and discuss something. Um, you know, I'm here. My brother's here. We're here, um, you know, pretty much all day. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're always here to, to listen to concerns. And I, I think that's very important in, in running a business is to, to be available and to show people that you care, that you respect them, and, you know, in, in turn, then they can respect you as well. And I think that's very important. That's something I've seen my father do and um, something that I would pass on to anybody who, who wants to run a company. Uh, the other thing I think you said, or the two things, um, um, you know, I, I think being – Detail oriented is huge, um, especially with compliance. You know, everything's documented. Everything. I mean, there's so many, um, you know, compliance laws that require a signature. Everybody has to, you know, sign this form. Or everybody. I, I, it's just, it's just about getting down to the tiniest detail and um, and and focusing on that. And you know, it's difficult and it seems uh, tedious, but you know, once you do that, you know, once you once it's moving in that direction, it's easy to continue in that direction. I, I have to say, you you've impressed me uh, 
about your company. Um, I have no opinion of your company, but if, if uh, the rest of it talks the way you do, uh, next time I have to replace my windows, I'm definitely coming to see you. <laughs> well, we appreciate um, it. <laughs> no, I, uh, no, I appreciate you. Um, it, it, it's a really interesting. Now, uh, Dave, um, I frankly want to invite you back and devote more of the program to you, you your company, and your study, because I think it's fascinating. We're running out of time. And, um, but, uh, Dave, uh, if you wanted to leave our audience with one or two thoughts, what would they be? Um, yeah. Um, first of all, I completely agree with uh, everything Nick just shared there in terms of you know some great advice. The only one I, I, I would add, if I would have the liberty to add a third one, as I think particularly in smaller businesses, uh, one of the most powerful things you can do is to figure out what to say no to. It's very easy to get wrapped up into saying, yes, you want to do more and take on more. Uh, but sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is figure out what you're not going to do and what you're not going to be because your resources are limited. A lot of focus, I think, leads to a lot more success rather than trying to take on too many things. As it relates to the to the um, you know, the topic that I was on around, around our, our study and what we were able to find there. Um, I think, again, I would re really reinforce the idea that it's, there's a larger conversation that we should be happening, or we should be having uh, as, as a country around what it is that we want to do around the issue that is real in terms of this divide. Is this something that we want to let businesses just go figure out and the free market go decide? Is this something that that we want to have a deeper conversation about to solve some of these problems that just mean that there's a bit of an unfair advantage in the system. Um, and it relates to the amount of time and energy and resources that we want to make available to things like our families. Um, and so beyond just our careers, how much energy do we want to allow uh, all of our employees to be able to focus on their family and get that balance right? So I'll leave you with those thoughts. Well, boy. Uh, uh, I, what I like about this program is sometimes you go one direction and you end up with a, a positive other direction. Thank you both for joining us yes. today. Thank it's you. Been, uh, it's been illuminating to me. I hope it is as well to our audience. And uh, good luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture.